I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to the Human Ordinary Podcast. True stories about our culture, our relationships, and all those things that make us human. I've been told that Australians used to picnic in cemetery grounds, escaping the bustle of the city for the still and quiet of a local graveyard. Not so anymore. And it's a shame, really, because not only are cemeteries peaceful places to be, but I also think they're a lot like museums. You see, the design of memorials, from the large stone Celtic crosses to the stark and ornate mausoleums, can show how different cultures remember their dead. The crumbling state of graves can give you clues to the history of the cemetery and the city it lies in. And on the headstones themselves, you can find stories of the people who lived in a particular place at a particular time. I've always liked imagining these stories, trying to decipher the clues on the headstones. It sort of reminds me of the blurb on the back of a book enticing you to read it. My interest is constantly being piqued looking at headstones. And sometimes, I've just got to know the story behind it. On the Human Ordinary Podcast, this is the Headstone Series. Melbourne General Cemetery in Carlton is a massive 430,000 square metre space filled with at least 300,000 graves. Close to its northern fence line, to the northeast, is a memorial I first noticed about 10 years ago and I've thought about it off and on ever since. It's approximately 130 metres square with the ground covered in concrete, a platform that rises about half a foot above the surrounding area. In the past, it must have been fully enclosed by marble pillars joined by a chain. Now, many of the pillars have fallen and lie scattered. Within this perimeter are 100 individual headstones, lined in five rows and separated by a path down the centre. To the casual observer, it most closely resembles a military gravesite, stark, uniform and utilitarian. Each headstone is rectangular and shows a name that is recognisably Asian and possibly Chinese, yet they are written with English letters. Ah Pao, Loi Po Leung, Louis Ah Sing. And that is all that is on them. Just a name. No dates, no dearly beloved or greatly missed messages from the family, or anything that could shed light on who these people were. What's more, 48 of the headstones have the name Ah, A-H, written first. Now I'm pretty sure that in Chinese the surname comes first. So are 48 of these people from the same family? 
The only clue to what this all is is a larger headstone that stands beyond the back row. It is a lot more ornate than the rest and shows two columns of Chinese characters in gold etching. The meaning of most of these are lost on me, except for some in the first column that are identical to Japanese kanji that I remember from my time overseas. They say 1, 9, 7 and 2, followed by the character for year. So something happened in 1972. In front of this headstone is a small sandbox with fake flowers, burnt out incense sticks and half melted red candles, all placed there fairly recently. Next to this is a large concrete urn with a heavy lid. Inside, ashes and half-burnt fake Chinese money. Someone is still visiting this and paying their respects. Maybe a family member. So what happened in 1972 in Melbourne? Well, the Vietnam War was still happening, and I know there were a lot of refugees that fled to Australia at that time. It's possible that a refugee boat sunk en route, and this is a memorial to those who died. But this looks all Chinese, so would that be likely? I also remember that the Westgate Bridge collapsed sometime in the early 70s. It's kind of silly to think, but these people may have been working on the bridge and died in the accident. Or perhaps I'm just thinking of that Simpsons episode where they go to Duff Gardens and learn that 22 immigrant workers died in the construction of the pyramid, which kind of makes this theory a little racist. Whatever happened, I feel like it was a single tragic event that resulted in the deaths of all of these people. So I need to discover who these people were. Hopefully the key to explaining this is in getting those Chinese characters translated. A lot of the work that I do is, is helping Australian companies expand into not just China but into Asia more broadly. This is my friend Sarah Gilday. She works for a bank with a lot of Chinese business clients and has spent significant time living, studying and working in China. Um, here's an interesting thing. A lot of people said, oh, you know, it'll be really easy. You speak Chinese, it'll, you know, you'll just, you'll just slot right in. And you do, but you don't. So, I show Sarah a picture of the headstone. And her translation just seems to offer up more questions. It says either restored or rebuilt in 1972. So it might have been where they were already lying. The part down the middle in the, in the bigger characters is traditional Chinese, but it, it means sort of the first Chinese expats, if you like, or, or those living abroad, cemetery. So cemetery right. for the first, the first Chinese living abroad. Okay. And by living abroad, I, I would assume that they mean living, living here. Mm. So it would seem that all of my theories of single event disasters have proven to be the product of an overactive imagination in search of high drama. Pretty standard for me, really. So my question about who these people were seems to be answered, or at least half answered. These were the first Chinese people living in Australia. I would guess that that means these people were here in the gold rush, which was around the mid-1800s. But what happened in the 70s that meant this memorial had to be built a century or so after these people were first buried? What was special about these people that someone could be bothered to do that? And who is that someone? I put in a call to the cemetery and speak with the historian there, but she has no idea what the memorial is for and wasn't even aware it existed until I told her about it. I get the same response at the Chinese Museum in Chinatown. So I head to the State Library, where they have burial records for most of the cemeteries in Melbourne. And there I get my first little breakthrough. 
Some of the names on the headstones are in these records. They reveal that the people buried there died between 1876 and 1890. And they were buried in something called a pauper's grave. A pauper was someone who died destitute and did not have enough money for a funeral or a burial plot. And the government paid for the funeral and burial plot. There are thousands and thousands of pauper's graves in Melbourne General. So amongst all those thousands, there'd be people from all backgrounds. This is Dr Celestina Sagazio historian and manager of cultural heritage with the Southern Metropolitan Cemeteries Trust, which includes Melbourne General. Minorities such as Chinese communities were not allocated burial areas solely for their members' use. They were not part of the prevailing Christian tradition, therefore they were segregated. Trustees were forbidden to interfere with religious rites in the cemetery, but not all were convinced that Chinese rites were truly religious. The Chinese had these fireworks and they look different, they want to exhume bodies, mm -hmm. so they were different from that point of view. So now I'm a little closer to understanding who these people were. Early Chinese immigrants to Australia and poor. And so that question keeps begging. Why did people 100 years later care about these poor strangers enough to reconstruct their memorial? What am I missing? When I get home, I do some Googling and write emails to a few Chinese historical societies in Melbourne. I attach photos of the memorial and ask if anyone can shed some light on who put it there and why. And then I decide to head back to the Chinese museum to learn more about these paupers buried at the cemetery. My name is Wong Kok Lam. I'm from Choi San, one of the CEO the district to the south of Canton. The museum isn't half bad, full of detailed information and well-made exhibits. One recording tells a fictionalised account of a Chinese man from the Toisan region. His family is poor and needy and the countryside is gripped by war and bandits. He comes to Victoria looking for gold and opportunity, the fortune to ease his family's woes back home. Another exhibit is set up like the inside of the ship that such a man would have travelled on. It's a cramped space and the whole thing sways as if on water. It kind of reminds me of an animatronic ride you might find at Disneyland, like Pirates of the Yangtze. Upstairs, there's a wall of information detailing the hostility shown to early Chinese immigrants. There was a wariness of the city to accept them because they weren't Christian or because they had funny hair and funny clothes and ate funny food. They were coming to take our jobs and would most definitely destroy our culture. And that's saying nothing for all the drugs they were bringing here. A cartoon from the day depicted a call to arms against the yellow pest, and I thought it all remarkably similar to a lot of sentiments you hear today, just with Chinese instead of Middle Easterners. I'm coming to the realisation that I may never be able to find out much more about who was buried at the memorial, but I feel like I'm getting a bit of a sense of what life may have been like for them. They leave their home and arrive in an alien environment, a country with a young history populated by people who are wary and fearful of outsiders. The going is tough and they sorely miss their family and friends. And then they die, poor and alone, and buried in strange soil. A few days later, and there's a response to my emails. A man named Andrew Wong is very interested in the story. 
and wants to meet with me. Because it does not look anything like a Chinese grave. The Chinese graves are usually is round in the top. Number two is obviously Chinese graves are always written in Chinese. So that obviously looks like a reconstruction. Andrew is a family historian and is really into early Chinese Australian history. And I'm glad to have connected with him because I feel like I need an insider to answer some questions. Um, uh, most Chinese see themselves as one component of a lineage all following the surname. And that is the so-called Confucius idea of the family being the centre of the universe. Which brings me to asking whether those 48 people with R as their name were related. But as it turns out, not only are most of the names on the headstones written the English way, that is, with the surname last, but R is a kind of nickname, sort of like adding a vowel to the end of your name if you're Australian, Chrissy or Stevo or Dazza. It's an informal way friends might refer to each other. But it was picked up by Australian authorities and used as a substitute for the person's harder-to-understand full name. So many of the records for early Chinese immigrants will have R listed as their first name. But their real name is something else. And it should have been on the headstones, along with some other information. Written on, across the top is the village or the county they're from. The middle of it, in the very top word, will be the surname. And the next two will be the name. So we don't see any of those in the Melbourne Cemetery. Andrew says that there's nothing to suggest that the people buried at the memorial were prospectors, as they would most probably be buried on the goldfields. He says these people are more likely to have been the early pioneers of Chinese-Australian commerce in Melbourne. In the Chinese tradition, when somebody died, the responsibility of the affairs is usually next generation. And in fact, in the Chinese culture, when you die, you need to be properly buried in an auspicious burial site. And the grave needs to be tended to and kept tidy. And it is important to the dead that future generations visit and pay respects at their grave. For the living, it is important because it is part of your being. It is part of your existence. Oh, a debt to these people. Come and think of it, is the fear of most Chinese in a more traditional sense would be you died and you are not accepted or you're wandering in the underworld. So it's very important that the people who died are buried properly so that their, their soul is at peace instead of wandering around in, in a foreign land. And that is another reason that drives some of the early Chinese miners to have their remain buried back into Chinese soil, in, back in a village, not necessarily Chinese soil, but in a village. So. From the outside, the Siyup Temple in South Melbourne looks like an ordinary stone terrace house with an annex on each side. Chinese banners flank the main entrance with guardian lions looking on. The temple is set 20 metres back from the road and the front yard is a quiet strip of parkland that people use to sit and grab a few moments of peace. I'm sure most people don't know this place exists, even locals. Inside, the smell of incense is strong. And Andrew tells me that incense is just a simple way of honouring the dead. Kind of like flowers. There's a worship area that looks like the inside of a church, pews in rows all facing the front, where offerings have been placed before the feet of a big Buddha. Older women busily move around, sweeping and keeping the area respectful. I'm the only Westerner in the place, but they don't seem to even notice my existence. Siyup means four counties, 
and refers to an area of China where most expats hail from, including Toisan, which I learned about at the museum. The Siyup Society was set up in 1854 as a meeting place for people from these counties. If you were a newcomer who needed support to set themselves up, or if you had fallen on tough times, Siyup might be able to help. And it's here that Andrew introduces me to 96-year-old Maurice Leung, a stalwart of the Melbourne Chinese community and former president of the Siyup Society. In the early days, anyone could terminally ill or too sick to work. They've got no money, but he's going to die. Siyup to get a ticket to send him home. And, uh, Did that happen often? Uh, well, yeah. yeah. In uh, every shipment, about one or two. You know. Today, the society works hard to preserve a lot of the history of Chinese in Melbourne. Maurice takes us into a side room at the temple. It's a small room with really high ceilings, perhaps 10 metres high, and there's no lights save for candles and a bit of sun coming through the doorway. And lining the three walls, stretching all the way to the top, are small wooden tablets filled with Chinese writing. Just in this room, the first room, how many do you think we have here? 8,000. 8,000? Mm. All together it's about 17,000. 17,000 on these two rooms? Yeah. The tablets are about 10 centimetres by 15 centimetres, and they look like small headstones. And indeed, they actually serve the same purpose. I'm told that these tablets are common in Chinese homes throughout the world, and will feature the details of a family's ancestors. It is the responsibility of the next... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Next generation to keep this tablet going and then to pass it on to the next generation so it survives as a physical representation of the family's lineage. It's a very important part of Chinese culture. Since the 1800s, many Chinese people have died in Australia with no family or next of kin. And so the Siyup Society takes on the role of custodian for their ancestral tablet. The rooms that house these tablets at Siyup Temple are the equivalent of a cemetery, only without the bodies. You enter a name in there, you will be here forever. And we don't change people after 20 years or something like that, like other. No extra cost. That cost is about 500 bucks. But back in the day, it was only four shillings. Maurice is retired now, but he still continues to supervise a project to transfer all of the information on the tablets to a computer document so that it might be preserved forever. I uh, had to translate it into English. Ah, okay. <laughs> so that you can look Tied. it up, you know, by, uh, <coughs> by computer. But that's a big job. I haven't, I can't finish it. Maurice has copied down all of the 16,000 tablets in Chinese, a process that involves cleaning them, getting up to the high ones with scaffolding, photographing some, and restoring others. It's a massive job. Yes, as, as far as all these things, it's, uh, 
and looking for the Chinese histories in Australia. I myself have no affiliation to any belief. <laughs> because I believe in people. People help people. God won't help anything. Although some of the tablets are estimated to be from the late 1800s, to Maurice's knowledge, none of the people buried at the cemetery memorial have tablets in the temple. Maurice is actually the first person I've met who remembers the reconstruction of the memorial, although he nor Siyup were involved. To his recollection, the cemetery got in touch with the Chinese community about the degraded state of the graveyard. Headstones had broken and fallen, the ground was uneven, and there were weeds everywhere. A group called the Junghua Gongwei Society got involved to deal with it, but Maurice says they made a bit of a mess of things. He's not even sure if the right people are buried in the right place. I'm sure that more than those tombstones underneath, you know, it's ridiculous. Maurice says that they leveled the whole area. And in the leveling, whatever additional information had been on those original headstones was lost. Thanks to Maurice, I now had a great lead in finding out who built the memorial and why. I had to find this Junghua Gongwei Society, but any search I did turned up nothing. I decided to spend some time in the public records office, going through years of cemetery committee documents. I thought I might stumble upon a record of the cemetery handling the matter, but rather than a window into the past, this was like peering through a smudged porthole. Every turn of a weathered page brought a new hope that this one would give me a thread I could pull but nothing turned up. I started going through correspondence letters between the cemetery committee and others. Folders and folders of thin pages, all written in an old-timey cursive script, all tapped out on typewriter. Many of the letters were from people wanting to sell their plot back to the cemetery. Maybe they needed the money more than the security of a pre-purchased plot. Or maybe they found a better deal elsewhere, the free market even benefiting those looking for thrifty afterlife purchases. And then a letter turned up, dated July 28th, 1971. It read, With reference to a request from the Chinese committee to clean up the old area and replace the old headstones with new tablets set out in plans submitted, we would be grateful if we could now proceed with same. Signed, George Daw. 1971. Chinese committee. New headstones. That's a bingo. This had to be in reference to my memorial. I did some more digging and found out that George Dor had been dead for years, but before he died, his business had been absorbed into Cameo Memorials, still operating in Melbourne's north. And, as luck would have it, Cameo are very much involved with the Chinese community, thanks to one of their staff, Sonny Zhuang. And we built 2005, we built in Faulkner, 2006 we built in Alalas City, we built 2007, we built Sonny is listing all of the memorials that he and the Victorian Chinese Memorial Foundation have constructed since 2005. It's an exhaustive list. Sonny is a short man with a salesman's glint in his eye, but his passion for community and history is evident. The Chinese from the many thousand years ago always keep the history of the parents. Grandparents, grand grand generation parents. All the Chinese still keeping that uh, what traditional culture, mm. Chinese language, Chinese festival, 
they never disappear. This echoes something Andrew Wong had told me. The Chinese culture is not only about their life, it's about them in relation to everybody else. You're only one component of a chain of people that supposedly go all the way back to the, the first emperor. But that's another story. And the importance of this is further evidenced by two festivals on the Chinese calendar, the most popular being Qingming, where families will return to the graves of their ancestors to clean them up, pay respects and connect with the past. In the Qingming festival, uh, people go there with their family. They will go to the gravesite, for example, your great-grandmother's first, and, and then the extended family, and so on. So there's a picking order of some sort. And if you look at the Chinese funeral, particularly funerals in Southeast Asia, not so much in China, one of the proceedings was to send stuff to the person who's deceased. The stuff I'm talking about is physical items, mobile phones, money, food, a car. Now, these are not real ones, but they're paper ones. So I remembered the oven at the memorial with ashes and half-burnt fake money inside. There's an assumption that when you pass on, you're with somewhere else, and that somewhere else you still need material things to continue. Andrew says that the connection of this world to the other is through fire and consuming something in flames. He says he's heard stories of people burning a particular piece of clothing or a table tennis bat because someone who has recently died used to enjoy them and might want them in the afterlife. And this has not changed for, well, maybe two, three thousand years. In fact, Back at Cameo, I'm introduced to another man named Norman NG, who talks to me through Sonny as an interpreter. Like Maurice Leung, Norman says he remembers when the memorial was built. He was working in a restaurant back in the 70s, where his boss would discuss the matter with people from the community. What he found out is that during 1970, the, the Melbourne Cemetery... They, uh, they have contacted Chinatown. The cemetery was concerned about the state of the burial area. And no one cared about it. Some is broken, some is uh, water, everywhere. The government owned the Melbourne General Cemetery and so gave the Chinese community a couple of options. The first was that if they didn't care about it, the cemetery would clean the area up and sell the plots to others. The second option is if you don't want the government to clean it up, you have to rebuild it. And after the few meetings in Chinatown, all the Chinese get together, they said this Chinese history, we can't let the government clean that up. And so, with the second option the only acceptable one, they committed to paying for the reconstruction themselves. Norman and Sonny tell me that this kind of thing is not unusual. Even all the ancestors in Carlton, no one is the parent, grandparent, but they are still doing that. Because from the generation to generation, they're teaching the Chinese in the young people have to respect the old people, even respect the people not your relative. Because if they are not making decisions on that day, we haven't seen this. And yeah. this history will disappear. Yeah. You know, I spent all this time thinking about who had built the memorial and why. And it turns out that it's just strangers. Everyday Chinese people with an interest in honouring a shared cultural heritage and preserving their collective history. Norman shows us a photocopy of a document detailing all of the donations that were collected so the memorial could be built. It's handwritten in Chinese and would be very exciting, if only I could read it. There's no time to get a translation as Norman needs to leave. But as he's leaving, he mentions the Zhonghua Gongwei Society and I have to stop him. He confirms that this group were the ones involved in the project and that three men in particular took the lead. But only one of them is still alive. His name is Bruce Liu, 93 years old and former member of the Zhonghua Gongwei Society. And while I have answers about the memorial, it's all a bit vague and second-hand. Bruce, 
as one of the men in charge of rebuilding it, should be able to fill in all of the gaps. Theban Chen, member of the Victorian Multicultural Commission, is a good friend of Bruce's and drops by to translate. Bruce tells me that back in the early 70s, the state government contacted the Consulate General who got in touch with a man named Long Wing. Long was an interpreter for the Immigration Department and was told that the pauper's graveyard had fallen into disrepair. So the cemetery's request was the Chinese community to help them establish those individual uh, headstones. The Chinese community didn't have any idea about that part of the cemetery actually existed. The community just responded to that and established a planning committee. Bruce says that the Junghua Gongwei Society were the prime movers of the reconstruction, but didn't manage the project, as this task fell to a preparatory committee. I show Bruce and Sieben the donation record from Norman, and they pore over it. They translate it for me, and it reveals that the project also involved the building of a Chinese pagoda in the cemetery, some distance away from the memorial. On the donation record, they point out two columns of Chinese characters. So these two were the owner of a restaurant which were quite well known called Tianjin in St Kilda. They said to the community, we will be responsible for the whole of this memorial and the pavilion and you look after the rest. And they did. 130 donations from individuals, societies and businesses. Just under $10,000 was raised to build a memorial for people that no one knew. When these uh, old graves were uncovered, the Chinese community mainly take on the responsibility of raising the money for it. Not because they were descendants. The Chinese community were just doing an act of charity. Just about everyone, actually, were willing to dig in. Bruce owned a successful grocery store back in the day, and his role was to be treasurer of the project. Many of the names on the donation record he remembers, but very few are still around. Bruce also admitted to being the one who designed the principal headstone in the memorial, drawing the characters so they could be copied by the stonemason. But he is very modest about his contribution. He doesn't feel there's anything special. It was something needs to be done, he did it. He says that all the physical labour work was done by George Dore and his crew, and this may be why there is such a lack of information. They had no thought about needing to preserve those names and birthplace and so on, because there's no... No one who's a descendant to care about that. And uh, for the community's point of view, they're all Chinese. He reckons that the cemetery powers that be are now regretting not preserving all of the historical information. The newer headstones had to be based on incomplete records. The, the cemetery's record would have been based on whatever immigration paper these people processed. And the earlier comers, the people who were buried there, quite often they were buried under their what you might call nicknames. Mm -hmm. He's talking here about all of the R names on the headstones. So the, the remaining Chinese community at that time actually knew very little about the real identity of these people who were buried there, or their descendants. I mean, to say information was, was lost, but the Chinese community weren't particularly aware of it. I asked Bruce if he thought something like this would be supported by the Chinese community today. In Chinese society now, this uh, respectful ancestor is actually considerably diminished because it was just discouraged for the last, what is it, 60 years. You know, we are new China, we don't worship the old, old people anymore. 
Uh, there's a little bit of tendency now moving back. I came into this story expecting to uncover a tale of tragedy, a catastrophic event that claimed the lives of 100 Chinese people, many of them all from the same family. I thought the story behind the headstones would be flashy and full of drama. Instead, what I've found is a story of the fading memory of people who died, far from home and alone. People who had come to Australia in search of opportunity and ended up in a sometimes hostile environment, dying destitute and buried in a mass pauper's grave against cultural customs. And it's the story of a community of people 100 years later who decided to do something to honour these strangers. By sole virtue of the fact that they shared a common nationality, they gave what they could and vowed that these people would not be forgotten. It was their cultural responsibility. You know, I hear so many people go on about the West's cultural heritage and history and how it's coming under attack. But how many of those people would frequent museums and cemeteries? How many seek to reinforce a link with the past by learning about it, remembering and understanding? When somebody dies, we avoid looking back. We move on. We try to get past it and look forward to the next day. This is all to shield ourselves from the heartache that a loss brings, but maybe the consequence to our heritage is greater than the personal emotional benefit. You know I've only just recently visited the graves of my great-grandparents. They're buried three kilometres from my home. Paying respects to ancestors and keeping strong the connection with past is not something we seem to deem terribly important. Well, at least not in my experience. But yet, here are people like Bruce and Norman and Maurice and Andrew and Sonny who spend time, money and energy to honour and preserve the memory of strangers. People need to remember that, that we sitting in, in the world today is one part of a continuous story of the human race. And not remembering history is one of the saddest things a human can do. So, so that's my contribution. Thanks to all my interviewees for this episode, Sarah Gilday, Dr. Celestina Sagazio, Andrew Wong, Maurice Leung, Sunny Jiong, Norman NG, Bruce Liu, and Sieben Chen. Thanks also to the Chinese-Australian family historians of Victoria, Cameo Memorials and Stan Harris, Hong Tan, Posse, the Si Yup Temple, Bin Lee for translation help, and John Chiha for production advice. And a special big thank you to Andrew and Sunny for your time in making introductions and providing information. I would like to also acknowledge Miles Martignoli, who kindly donated to my podcast to assist in production and promotion. You can leave a donation too through the website humanordinary.com. The Human Ordinary podcast is produced in Melbourne by me, Sam Lloyd. The theme music is by The Contortionist Handbook and all other music is by Kent Sutherland. The Human Ordinary podcast is now on the Planet Broadcasting Network. Check it out for some great Australian shows. And if you like what you heard, drop me a line on the Facebook page or leave a review or rating on iTunes. Anyway, thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 